Hey guys, I hope you're loving the Making Bank episodes. Please make sure you guys like and share these episodes as well as comment below for the guests. They love to come back and interact with you. And I really appreciate you watching and listening to Making Bank. So thank you. You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Excited for today's guest, Michelle Seiler Tucker, Kevin David, Jordan Metterick, Perry Marshall, Ray Higdon, John Warlow, Joe Foster. What were some of the big things that you're like, oh, you know, I guess uh, eye openers, like, oh, from a success standpoint, like, man, these guys, these people are doing it right and they have this really dialed in. You know, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I, <laughs> very few, you know, wow. I can probably give you, I can write a book about the mistakes that business owners make <laughs> and fill it up with probably a thousand pages. And then the ones that do it right, very small, teeny tiny book, <laughs> <Take a> page, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> very small percentage. I know that sounds terrible. Um, but I mean, there are some companies, you know, there's a company that we've been working with on, on selling kind of on the fence. Um, but they've done everything right. They really have. Well, I say they've done everything right. They've done everything right, but their financials, their financials okay. are a disaster, you know, and, and they even have audited financials and the owner keeps telling me, well, Michelle, we're making all this money and we got this and we got that and our W2s and we got this and, you know, we give our grandchildren $30,000 a month. No, you've given your grandchildren actually 3000 for the year. <laughs> and so it's just a complete, you know, I, I don't. Not knowing where it's at. They don't know where they are. Like, they have no mm-hmm. idea where they are. And when I talked to the auditor, the auditor was like, no, they're not paying their grandchildren $30,000 a month. <laughs> but, I mean, the company is doing about 8 to $10 million in EBITDA. But the owner yeah. thinks they're doing like 12 to $15 million. So, therefore, his perception is warped mm-hmm. because he thinks he should get a lot more money than what he's going to get because he's going to get paid off that 8 to 10 not that 12 to 15 Sure. Uh, but everything else they're doing right. But you know, that, that is one of the biggest issues that we see is that most business owners don't know their numbers. What's one thing you're like, Oh man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this, but he didn't cause we got off um, on another direction. Something you really want to share with everybody. I think one of the biggest things to share with everybody, two big things. Uh, number one is I, I call it the GPS exit model that everyone should plan their exit from the beginning rather than when a catastrophic event occurs. Right. And I'll run you through that real quick because nobody really does this. You know, I do have clients in my mentoring program that are doing this now, but number one, start with the end in mind. You know, when you want to drive somewhere, you pull out your phone and you plug in Google Maps. What's the first thing you plug in? Your destination. Address. Yeah. <laughs> your address, your destination. Yep. You know where you're going. But so many business owners have no idea where they're going. So they drive around in circles up and down the financial hills to end up nowhere or end up for selling for pennies on a dollar, end up closing your business or end up filing bankruptcy. So don't do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. business owners don't plan to fail. They fail the plan. So I tell all business owners, plug in your destination. Figure out your desired end game. What is your desired price tag? Let's say you want to sell for $20 million. Great. That's a number. You might say, oh my God, that's too high. 
whatever, pick a number. You might make it, you might not make it, but you got to start somewhere. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And now the GPS needs to know what next, where you're starting from, what's your current location, what's your current evaluation. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised, Josh, how many business owners have no clue what their business is worth. They they have a, a, a perception of what they think it's worth, but what they think it's worth is based upon what they want to retire on, not what the value is of their business. So it's really important. I mean, us humans go to the doctors all the time, right, to get annual checkups to make sure our body's okay. We drive our car to mechanics to get our car checked up, but we never get an annual valuation checkup. So there are, there are events that increase valuation, COVID is one of them. <laughs> there are events that decrease valuation. COVID is one of them. So you really need to know every year what your business is worth. What were some of your big takeaways from that that you've been able to apply to, you know, your growing your first Amazon business to your more current uh, ventures and everything? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of things, right? I mean, I think probably the main thing that, that I've used um, throughout my my kind of short career as an entrepreneur, right? Because I mean, a lot of people forget I've only been doing this for just about four years. And so, you know, we've been able to grow, you know, millions of, of subscribers on YouTube, millions of followers across social media. Um, you know, we built multiple very successful businesses in a very short time, right? And probably the number one thing that I accredit that to is... Uh, well, working smart, working hard, being consistent, obviously those things are all very critical, but, but more specifically kind of reverse engineering success and, and understanding that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? Like when I was beginning, I was thinking that the only people who are successful are people who are starting like brand new businesses that, you know, no one's ever done before, but that's just not the way the world is, right? Like if you do a, a business that works and you do it slightly better or slightly in a better way, or you even have geographical proximity, or you have some little tiny insight about how to reach customers, or you have a charismatic personality, right? People will choose you over other similar businesses. And, and so trying to make something that's brand new, right? In most cases, right, is not gonna work nearly as well, especially for a beginner. Um, as reverse engineering and duplicating success and not reinventing the wheel. What was some of the top takeaways that you've from success that you've learned um, that you're like, all right, cool. I know people can apply this or start doing this and this will help, you know, move their business along. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is, is, and these are such like cliche things, but it's like generally things become cliche because they're correct. Right. So like one of the, one of the biggest ones for me was reading like, you know, I used to think that I was too busy to read, but that's like saying like you're you're too busy to you're too stressed out to meditate, right? Like if you don't have five minutes to meditate, you should you just should meditate for ten minutes. Yeah. Um, similarly, like if you think you're too busy to read, um, you, you should read to get less busy, right? By creating better systems and processes. And so, you know, I created a, a book list uh, of you know the top one hundred autobiographies written by billionaires, mm -hmm. right? Because you know. Even though money's not the most important thing, if you become, you know, a deca, hundred millionaire, billionaire range, you know, you figured out something that most people have not, right? Sure. And so, you know, I, I learn from, from people that have really figured out at least the financial aspects of life. And generally, when people figure out the financial aspects of life, they figure out kind of the fulfillment and purpose because they have enough time to do it, right? There's a book called The Second Mountain, which talks about the first mountain being, you know, uh, financial freedom and, and not being able to see the second mountain until you get there. And then the second mountain, of course, representing fulfillment, mission, actually kind of living a, a happy and healthy life. But the thing is, like people that don't prioritize
as reading. Like there's a there's a popular quote that I'm probably going to butcher, but it says, you know, people who don't read live one life and people who read live a thousand lives. Mm -hmm. And so you can literally tap into like decades or a lifetime of learning from some of the smartest people in the world, you know, in the palm of your hand, but people still don't prioritize it. And so it's just a really it's a really important thing that I've learned um, to be able to read and then apply that information um, to your actual, you know, other ventures in your life. What's one thing you're like, oh, man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this, but he went a whole nother direction that you really want to just share with everybody before we end here? Yeah, I mean, what, what I'll say is this, right? Because I think, you know, people people ask me the question all the time, like, Kevin, what what was like the number one reason that you were able to, you know, find success or, or be able to like leave your job or or create, you know, a successful entrepreneurial, you know, venture? And it's hard to kind of boil everything down to one thing right because there's so many variables there's so many like there's elements of luck the people that you meet right all of these different things that, that coincide but in my opinion there really is one thing that's the most important when it comes to being successful as a human being you know in, in the chaos of life or, or whatever you want to call it and and you know that that thing i like to call delusional confidence right because in a traditional sense, confidence comes from having experience, having results, and then that gives you the confidence, right? But the problem is if you don't have those results and you haven't, you know, achieved those results yet, right, then you don't have that confidence by default. And so, you know, delusional confidence, what that means to me is you believe in yourself with this unbreakable, unshatterable confidence that you're going to be successful no matter what you do. Right. When I left Facebook, my mom, my parents, uh, you know, my, my coworkers, my girlfriend, everyone said I was crazy. Right. But it, and if I didn't have that un, that unbreakable, right, delusional confidence in myself that I would eventually be successful no matter what, who knows what would have happened. I might still be there today. What um, are some of the th big things that you feel, whether it's from you or you, you've created or you've brought to the business from over the years have experienced and stuff from a like a success or a strategy standpoint that's really helped you guys you know grow drop funnels this is a yeah i would say I, I i look at teams i think a little different than most people and sometimes there's a failure point to it but it's worked out pretty well i personally would rather hire someone because teams and culture are how you scale period sure like I get to have fun with my boys and go off and take a week off every six weeks because there's a team in place that can handle things when I'm not there. Right. And that's just what I want to do with my life. Right. I don't, I don't want to be working 16 hour days. So for that, I like to bring team members in who are hungry, but don't yet have the skill set that they need yet. Mm. Cause I can teach, okay. I can train skills, but I can't treat, I can't train desire. Right. So for example, if you're going to hire an operations manager, your first inclination might be like, I'm going to go hit Glassdoor and I'm going to go hire. It's going to be 12 or 15 grand a month for an operations manager. Bring them in. They're going to be fully experienced. They've worked for Oracle or whatever that is before. It's expensive. That's an expensive decision to make, especially when you're bootstrapping. Sure. So instead, what I like to do is bring in people from inside and say like, man, this person's really identifying some core competencies. I bring them in and be like, Hey, I want to work with you honing that skill, help you to really get clear on what you want and how we can help you hit your own, you know, some of your own personal goals and turn them into an operations manager or a marketing manager or an ads manager. There's no lack of information or skills that can be taught to a person. Right. Uh, and, 
and it ends up being like far more sustainable. So we've got 19 people on, on our team now. Um, and a hundred percent of our teams have been hired from within. It's not like we go the classic corporate route or any of that. It's like users of the platform who love it and they shout the rooftops about it. We bring them in and say, Hey, let's help you really find what you want to be and steward them in that way. Yeah, no, that's super cool. And as you mentioned too, I mean, it helps build the overall culture and environment that people are operating together because that person's already been with you at some level, you know, now they're just moving into a different role or a different, you know, uh, focus and everything. So it's not like, oh, cool, there's somebody new here and now I got to figure out and learn who they are and get to know them and all that. It's like, oh yeah, you know, John's already been here and, you know, he's part of the team and everything. Mm -hmm. So it's a good celebra celebration win for that. Uh, you mentioned taking time off, spending time with your boys and family and things like that. How have you set that up? It sounded like I got a little bit of it, but how have you set that up so you've been able to you know, maximize that time, you know, with family and not just, you know, grinding 90 hours a week and stuff. At <laughs> yeah. So I've got this, this is actually the first manuscript. It's not fully finished, but it's, it's a practice that I've been doing it for a while. It's called the secret seven. That's what I call the secret seven. And effectively the practice is this, you only have four sprints during a day. I mean, and it's like deeply rooted in research, psychology, history. I mean, it's like the data science is very strong. Uh, but what I do is I do four sprints a day, 90 minutes a piece is a total of six hours. If you're working more okay. than that, frankly, you're being inefficient. I mean, there's all the studies in the world will, will kind of back a lot of that sure. up that like, if you batch your stuff, it's based on um, the same guy who kind of identified the circadian rhythm when you're, when you're sleeping, yep. identified a daytime frequency called the ultradian rhythm, which is this 90 minute, a uh, high frequency followed by a 30 minute low frequency. And our bodies, like when you get into this rhythm, you find that you can dive into what Cal Newport calls deep work mm -hmm. um, and be extremely effective during a period of time, rest and like breathe for a moment and then dive back in during that time. So I work six hours a day, uh, generally six days a week. One of those days is, uh, um, is more like family oriented work and that kind of thing. Seventh day is a right. day of rest. And then I work six weeks and then I take off on the seventh week. And then this will probably extrapolate into, into months, like one month a, a year, I just take off entirely and we just, go, okay. you know, whatever. So that might, I don't, I haven't been doing it long enough to find out, but we might do six years of work and then a seventh year off. I don't know, but we've, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll wait to see. Keep trying that. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's really powerful when you set rules for yourself to find like it's, it's Parkinson's law that, you know, the work will expand within the limits that you set. So right, for sure. I think we could be far more efficient as entrepreneurs and get stuff done sooner, faster, more effectively when we set these rules. And then our family, you know, uh, you know, loves the extra time. Like I'll never, I don't want to grow up and, and, and hear my kids say, I wish I had more time with that. Like, I'm sure you for sure. probably feel the same way. I never want to hear that. Right. So I'm setting these rules now to avoid anything like that. No, that's, uh, that's super, that's super cool. Yeah. That's one of the big things I know, I mean, owning 15 companies since I was 14 and, you know, a few years back now we have three kids, but it's, is really integrated them into everything we do. So we've, you know, we take them to events now and we do that and our, you know, and our nanny goes to work, we do the event stuff or, and sometimes they participate in that. And then other times after we're done, you know, we hang out for four or five extra days and go spend time and whether it's hiking or, you know, doing fun stuff like that. So they're always involved in around everything that we're doing. 
one, because it helps create the curiosity. And then they're always like, oh, cool. You know, what are you doing now? And, and asking questions and things like that, which has spawned all three of them. And now they all own their own businesses and, and everything, too. So, you know, it's, it's cool. And I like what you're talking about, too. I'm going to probably steal some of that and try that out. And because <laughs> I, I do time chunk blocks and different things like that, too, throughout the day. But and it's probably about probably right around roughly six hours I'm actually working. But during that six hours, like you said, it's it's what most people would work in eight to ten hour day. Like what the level yeah, of stuff fact, that you've done. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was chatting with my team this morning, and and one of my guys did a did a sprint, and he's like, "Man, at the end of that, you feel like you did a whole work day. You're actually being you know that that effective." So, right? Yeah, it's That's very awesome. powerful to be embracing that that model. As you kind of talked about the seven steps of finding the gleaming sword at the bottom of the swamp, kind of give us an idea of what that is and how we can apply that in our business. If you kill a problem, but you don't kill the thing that gave birth to the problem, you didn't kill the problem. Yeah, (laughs) This is how most problems are. And most people are killing problems, whack, 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 and they're not dealing with the thing, the root of the problem. The root of the problem is at the bottom of a swamp that nobody wants to go into. Mm. Every, in fact, everybody is trying to avoid even. They're, they're all pr- trying to pretend it's not there even. Is there. No <laughs> there is no swamp. There is no swamp. What swamp? There's no swamp. This is a gated community. There's the clubhouse. There's what? What are you talking about? Right? They try to make you think you're crazy. You're like, uh, I saw a monster come kick in the door of the beer hall and kill a bunch of people last night. Didn't you see that? No, we didn't see that. Yeah. Right. Okay. And the weapons that you have at the top of the swamp don't work at the bottom of the swamp. You only figure out the weapons you need when you're at the bottom of the swamp. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the bottom of the swamp? It's the root of the problem. And most problems have roots that are very deep. And now, now why, why this story in very brief form is in this book, why, you know, like if, if, if I am not wasting a single word in 36 pages and like, this is the master business strategy for your whole life, why would I put that story? It's because most people only deal with the surface level of problems and they never deal with the roots. I'm telling you, when you get to the roots of problems, not only do you solve the problem, you will find you have also usually have, usually that sword will work on a hundred other monsters too, or at least 10. <laughs> More than one. <laughs> okay. Like, well, like when you, when you solve really deep problems, okay. So like, for example, Uber solved the taxi problem, at least in my opinion, like oh, I yeah. hated taxis. I, I think I sold my car three years ago and I mostly take Uber now. Not bad, right? Well, Uber also has Uber Eats. Like, they're solving a generalized transportation and delivery problem, not just a taxi Mm -hmm. problem, right? And it turns out Uber Eats has been very important in a pandemic. Right, right. And so so this is a whole mindset. And, man, if if you have a bottom-of-the-swamp mindset, um, you, like, you have a total lay down advantage compared to everybody else. 
Um, and you will go places that most other people will never go. And, and kings will invite you into their kingdoms that would never invite anybody else. Perry, one last thing uh, before we wrap up here. Uh, you're like, oh, man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this. Uh, what's one last thing you really want to share with our audience uh, that you think will impact them? I want people to know that if you adopt the method in this book, see, there, there's, I know there's, there's all kinds of time management sure. things and productivity things and getting done, things done things and how to do your morning. And almost all of them, they pile more and more and more stuff like, well, you need to check this and then check this off and check this. Detox, declutter, dominate is the total opposite of that. It's like subtract, subtract, eliminate, eliminate, subtract, subtract, eliminate, eliminate. You have enough time to do the things that you want to do. Everybody is so time starved. You don't need to be time starved. I'm not time starved. I, if you look at the stuff I'm doing, it's crazy. I, I have started two 501c3s in the last eight months. Okay, and I like I can tell you whole stories about that. I have time to do that stuff because I I do eighty twenty and I focus. I have a good business; it's a growing business, and I can still do these other things. And it's a great life. Like you don't have to be a prisoner to Facebook and Instagram. You don't have to be a slave to your email box. You can have space. You don't have to look busy. You, you can get what you need, most of what you needed to be done in three or four hours, not eight or 10. Yep. What were some of the big kind of takeaways that has helped you over the years that you learned early on as a kid kind of create that success for you? I would say one of the big keys is I consistently move forward imperfectly. <laughs> and yeah. um, I am by no stretch of the imagination an overthinker. I'm not a perfectionist. I am a let me do the best job I possibly can right now to generate results. And so I remember, so like one of our bread and butter, you know, you know, programs is called Rank Makers. And we have okay. over 13,000 people. They pay 20 bucks a month to be in a, a Facebook group wow. where we give them action steps and training, et cetera. And when I initially launched that, I literally didn't have a way to approve people into it. So people were paying and then I'm like, well, why isn't the group growing? And we hadn't connected that, you know, there needs to be a process. Sure. And, and we had this <laughs> secret group no one could find and people are paying for it and they start complaining. And I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> um, and so like I am, I know so many people that they spend years on What's my perfect avatar? What's my niche? What's my brand mark? What's the perfect logo? Or is it, you know, Palatone? Is it, you know, Veritas? Whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just, hey, let's get this stuff done and improve it along the way. And so, you know, that's something I've carried with me through every venture, you know, I've ever done. I remember my first year in real estate, me and a partner, uh, we buy 37 rental units and we literally don't know what the hell we're doing. And so we're, we buy these low income rental units. And, you know, I remember going into the first and these were all in the ghetto. These were all low income, tough neighborhoods where you right. go walk at night. And, and I remember the first time I had tenants destroy the place. And mm -hmm. so we go in there and like all the doors have holes in them. And there's like you know, this toilet is smashed. And, and both of us are like neither of us are handy, neither of us are mechanically inclined, like 
we don't know what the hell to do. Like, what do we right. do? And, and so that's, that's kind of been every career is you move forward imperfectly and you figure out how to get better as, as you go along, which I think is way better than the person that sits for years making it all perfect and then never actually makes a move. Yeah, no, that's super important. I mean, is is taking that action, whether it's 100% ready or 50% ready and moving forward and continuing like you did to make those tweaks and make those modifications as you're going uh, to yeah. keep improving, I think is huge. One more big takeaway for me is in, in real estate, I prided myself, like looking back, it was very stupid, but I prided myself that I wasn't one of those guys that constantly overspent on training and education and coaching. So, you know, I had flipped, I don't know, 50 homes and never attended a workshop, never, you know, I'd read books, right? But that was the extent of my, my education was I'd read, a, you know, some real estate books. I'd never, didn't have a coach, didn't go to workshops, didn't play, pay for seminars, didn't, you know, none of that stuff. And I prided myself on that. And <laughs> when the market crashed, I just wasn't educated enough to handle it. And so I, I learned that lesson. And so now every single year, you know, we, we invest multiple six figures in our education with coaches, with masterminds, et cetera. One of the more interesting ones was a couple of years ago, I hired Grant Cardone and I gave him a hundred thousand dollars for six hours. Wow. <laughs> and so it was you know, about 17,000 bucks an hour, yeah. but in hour one, in hour one, he changed the way I looked at our events and that added $1 million to our revenue that wow. year, one hour. And so, you know, it's, that's something that if I had, you know, a lesson that more entrepreneurs need to understand is to, as long as you're an executor, as long as you implement, then you need to double down on investing in yourself. And that, that dictates the speed of your growth. You know, I might've gone 10 years without that lesson from him, or I might've gone my whole life sure. without understanding what he taught me in one hour. What's one question or one idea you'd love to share with our audience? Something you're like, oh man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this, but he didn't. Um, that you're just like, all right, cool. I want to make sure I get it out there now. I mean, I think, I mean, I think one of the big lessons that we have in the book is um, you can create a great life despite a bad past. And you know, we've, um, you know, we've trained a lot of people over the years that have been through trauma or men and women that have been through sexual abuse, um, you know, all kinds of different things. One of my favorite stories from, from one of our uh, students is uh, Renee Adams. Renee Adams, um, you know, she was one of the contestants in our reality show and she had never, she had never done a video. She had never spoken publicly and she'd never shared her story. And she's someone that, you know, was physically abused, sexually abused, and even trafficked. Tough, wow. tough, tough, tough. And, and I told her, you know, when I learned that after, you know, love and honor and, you know, giving her, you know, love and caring, I said, you know, you're a survivor. You could inspire a lot of people. And, you know, you say that to people, some people do something with it, some people don't. Well, she did. Within one week, she was speaking at abuse centers for women within, wow. and just about maybe six months ago now, she spoke at the uh, 17th annual international conference against human trafficking for the university, um, for uh, I think University of Ohio or something in front of 19 countries. 
And wow. so here's someone that went her whole life. I mean, I don't know her exact age, but 40s, early 50s, maybe had never shared it. Now she's impacted countries. She's impacted tens of thousands of people. And so, no, if you've been through some stuff, you can create a great life and one that inspires others. That's awesome. What are some of the, like maybe the top three to five takeaways that when other people have applied have made a big impact, uh, you know, in selling their business? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the biggest things to remember, uh, is to not commit some of the classic unforced errors that we all make because, you know, for a lot of us, we, you only ever get one opportunity to sell your company. Maybe, maybe you build a couple of companies over a lifetime, but it's like a very, very unique circumstance. And you may only get one shot to get it right. And and there are just some classic unforced errors that that we just need to avoid. I mean, one of the one of the ones I hear all the time is savvy buyers will ask you what you want for your company. And, and it seems like an innocuous question to answer, right? Like, sure. Like what, you know, why not throw out your number? The problem with throwing out your number is that if you throw out some number that is really high uh, for fear of not negotiating with yourself and putting a ceiling on your business, a lot of buyers will go, okay, Josh is nuts. And they'll leave, right? They'll walk right. and they'll be like, he's a whack job. So if you put some crazy number on it, that's a problem. Equally, if you put a realistic number on it, you put a, a ceiling onto which nobody will ever pay a penny more for your company. Mm. I'm reminded of a, a guy I interviewed, uh, built a great little business called Pepper Jam. Chris Jones is his name. And I, and I talked to him for the book and I said, tell me about the sale of, 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 of Pepper Jam. And he said, well, I was, I was called to a meeting with a guy named Michael Rubin. And Ruben had sold GSI to PayPal and some huge, you know, deal worth, you know, a truckload of money. I think it was over a billion dollars. So Ruben was this sort of very big name in the tech space. And, and Chris was really flattered to be asked to his office. And he thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm going to be like, you know, you know, breaking bread with a tech luminary. And sure. so we so he walks into Ruben's office and rather than being alone, Ruben is flanked by his chief financial officer and his head legal counsel. And without even sort of the classic pleasantries, do you want a cup of coffee? Like He's like, all right, what do you want for pepper jam? And Joe's is like, what are you talking about? What do I want? I'm like, I thought we were chatting about business, technology, and the innovate. And he's like, no, no, what do you want for your company? And Jones kind of blurted out his number and Ruben, without even really acknowledging the number to Chris, looked at his CFO and said, all right, I think we can get a deal done, which was code to his CFO that not to pay a penny more for Chris's company than he just uttered. And I, I think it was, I talked to Chris after the fact, they said, like, if you had a do-over, like a mulligan, what would you do over? And he's like, I'd never answer that question again, because... Mm -hmm. You know, I put a cap on what what I could ever sell the company for. So that's one of the classic sort of unforced errors that uh, that we need to avoid that we talk a lot about in the book. What's uh, something you're like? Oh man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this because I really want to tell people or let them know. Uh, what's well, that? Know, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I we talked a lot about these big stories, and I don't mean to sound. You know, like it's your your show's called Making Bank, so I hope you don't mind the the big kind of successful uh, you know successful exits. But I but I do I don't want to leave the impression that you have to sell your business for some massive amount of money to be sure. a success. I I remember I, I interviewed one guy his name Sean Oshman, a wonderful guy, built a, a little IT services business in Denver, Colorado, a couple million in revenue. 
And he'd always dreamed of living on a sailboat. It's like as a, as a young kid, he always wanted to live, live on the sailboat. And so on his 39th birthday, he's like, you know what? I've got one year before I turn 40. I, I want to get on the boat. You know, I want to I want to get on my boat. And here he is in landlocked Denver, right? So he says <laughs> to a broker, I need you to sell my business. And again, it's a couple million in revenue, 10% profit margins, like a very kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say a very normal business, like nothing right. terribly sexy about it. Broker comes back to him and says, look, I've got an offer for 2.6 times SDE or say 2.6 times profit. And, uh, and Ashim says, where do I sign? Signs the paperwork, buys his boat. And when I talked to him, I, he was living on his sailboat. And I said, like, but Sean, like 2.6 times earnings is like not a huge multiple. You know, like you could have probably just kept the business and after three years had all that profit yourself. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but John, you're missing a central point. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, I live on a sailboat. And it was kind of dawned on me that, you know, when the most successful exits aren't always the ones that have the big numbers attached to them. Oftentimes the most successful exits are, are ones that have what we call pull factors, which are, in other words, things that you want to go do a book you want to write a business you want to start like a charity you want to donate to or whatever it is that is sort of getting your juices flowing. If right. you sell your business to go do something you're really excited about, there's no shame in that. It's a great outcome. What were some of the other things that you've, brought on from a mindset perspective that have helped you get, you know, to, you know, build, you know, with where Reebok got to. Well, I think when it comes to a mindset, I think that once you, uh, once you can see that uh, other people like your product, other people are willing to work, yeah, it, it is, that's the spur that goes on. If people have said, no, we don't like Reebok, no, but, but that wasn't there, you know, everybody seemed to right. love the name, love the culture. And we had a tremendous culture within the company. Everybody was in love with the company and everybody was working in the same direction. You know? and, and I think that is great. When the company gets bigger, you have to change a bit. I was willing to step back. And, and I think you have to know when it's your turn to step back and, and, and leave this to other people. And, and you know, my time was great. And, and it was that focus. I mean, even right now, right now we have a situation coming up where, where Reebok is now. Well, Adidas are now selling Reebok. It's, it's on the market. So I, it's going to be very, very interesting this, these next few months because I, th I think it's a tremendous opportunity. Whoever comes in, if they can get that focus, bring back that culture and get into the minds of people, we can actually drive Reebok in back to a number one, that's going to be a big job that because we're now talking about 20 billion uh, with, uh, with, <laughs> with Adidas. But, but you know, it, nothing's impossible, is it? Nothing's impossible, is it? Yeah, no. on that door, it leads anywhere. And if you're willing to keep pushing, yes, you're willing to keep going at it. And you've got the right attitude. And I think that's it. You know, you, you have to do it with an attitude that we can win. Mm. And you have that winning Yeah, attitude, for sure. I think, I think there's every good chance that you know, We'll be up there number one again. Awesome. Yeah, we got a few minutes left. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, how you realize, because obviously we have a lot of entrepreneurs that watch this. And how do you know when it's that right time? What are the signs that you saw that you're like, okay, it's time for me to step down and kind of pass that torch on, you know, to the next person to continue growing Reebok? I think the thing is, for me, it was a question of saying, once we'd got into America, I need Americans to run that business. Mm. It's no good me coming in, you know, 
I'm a Brit, I'm a European, I have a different approach to life. And and it's knowing that, yes, this will be good, because the the American psychology is, you know, they give you that opportunity. We, we had a great problem at first with the aerobic shoes, they fell apart. Had we been anywhere else in the world, we'd have just been dead. But no, the American approach was, no, give them another try. These are great shoes, just get it right. <laughs> so so sure. we, we got it right. And once the American market started to grow, it, it had to be almost an American company. It wasn't mm-hmm. for me to go in there and say, well, no, come on now, you've got to know who Joe Foster is. No, that wasn't, that wasn't the game. <laughs> the game. The game was to get Reebok number one. And, you know, the, and once Reebok got number one, and all these different things were going on. For me, I was just going on an airplane. I was flying to the next big city. I was picked up uh, by a limousine, driven to the best Italian town, and wherever it was. And, and we'd have a wonderful meal, and we'd be talking about the company. But we're more talking history. We're not really talking about where we're going. You know, everything, all that sure. is sort of, all that is sort of catalogued and planned. You know, everything's in plans. Yeah, I was used to working off the seat of my pants. When I, I didn't have a computer in 1958, 1960, or even 1979, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a mobile phone. Yeah, we'd, right. only, just, we'd only just got credit cards. So it was, it was jumping on a plane and it was doing it. That, by the time I left, that had gone. It was like, no, you know. I can't do that. You know, that, that was the excitement to me. The excitement, that was the buzz. And you know, not just sitting there counting numbers. Once we become a numbers company, this is somebody else's game. Somebody <laughs> 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 else can do that. You know, bankers or whoever they are, they, they, they're good at that. You know, as far as right. I'm concerned, you know, I was good at jumping on a plane and having a discussion with somebody. We, we can do something. We can get over this. You know, how do we do this? Uh, really being one-on-one and you know, having those problems was great. And but for me, having done that for so many years, it wasn't really possible just to sit back. It just didn't feel right. It's better to step back. And so that's sure. what drove me. That's what drove me to step back. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.